Hello, my name is Junius Williams, and I'm the host of Everything's Political. So as we have done for the last few months, we've looked at things that you ordinarily don't associate with politics, things that are less recognized, less analyzed. And today we're going to have something that you, well, you may consider it right off the bat, political, but I especially think it's an evidence of the political growth of some young people, and that's who we have here today. The name of our conversation today is Don't Erase Our History. And I'm talking to four young ladies from Denver, Colorado. I'm going to start out with a little bit from the blurb they put in their own podcast, No Justice, No Peace, The Take. Let me start off by just giving you a few words from something that they wrote about themselves. Why did we have to travel 1,000 miles to learn about Black history? This question would become the driving force behind several initiatives led by the Black Student Alliance. These young leaders took their passion full speed ahead, presenting their ask to various leaders, including their school district and beyond. So who am I talking to? I am talking to, and I'm going to ask them each to give you just a little bit about themselves in two or three sentences. How are you going to tell us who you are, what you're interested in, so we'll know who we're talking to? The first one I'm going to introduce is Donnie Austin, who's age 16. Hello, world. My name is Donnie Austin. Like he said, I'm 16, and I'm a sophomore here at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Early College. A little bit about me is I'm very invested in my education, and I have a strong passion for social justice. And working with these girls and just being able to go on the trip and learn a little more about my history has just encouraged me, made me inspired to teach others. And next, we're going to meet Janelle Nanga. Hi, um, I am Janelle Nanga. I'm 18 years old, a senior at DMLK. I'm a very passionate change-seeking activist and a student athlete at DMLK. The third person is Kalia Yazar. Um, yes, my name is Kalia Yazar. I'm 15. I'm also a sophomore at DMLK. I'll just say, like everyone else on this call here, I'm very passionate about the work we're doing that has to do with Black history and just true educational liberation for all students, not only in our district, but just hopefully across the nation. And last but not least is Alana Mitchell. Hi, my name is Alana Mitchell. I'm 17 years old. I go to DMLK. Um I'm also a student athlete. I'm very, very interested in social justice and just making a change for my people. And I'm really excited to be here today. Thank you. We're excited to have you too. Now, in case you all out there missed it, the common denominator for all these young ladies is social justice. Their interest in it, their devotion to it. And this came about because of a a trip. I'm going to tell you how I met you. I met you on the on NBC News. I don't usually watch regular news channels, but I happened to be passing through the living room. My wife had it on. And the first person I saw was Donnie. And I said, whoa, listen to what she's saying. And as the broadcast continued and I heard from all of you, I said, I got to check these ladies out. And it became clear that you were on a mission, and we're going to explain that mission in a minute, but I said, well, how am I going to find them? They're in Denver, and I'm in Newark, New Jersey. I used the internet to track your principal, Miss Kimberly Grayson, at the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Early College in the Denver Public Schools. 
So I then found the telephone number. I called her. I had to uh, make sure I put all my particulars out there and uh, I, I let her know about this podcast. I also let her know uh, who I was and uh, my standing in the community. And uh, lo and behold, within about uh, 15 to 20 minutes, she called me back and she said, that would be great. She said, that would be a wonderful experience for you all. And she believes, she truly believes in you. As a matter of fact, this this podcast, I wish I had more time. I would just like to do a podcast featuring her as well as you. And I see you all in agreement. So what do you think about Miss Grayson? Tell me what you think about your school principal. Her being my aunt, clearly I've known her my entire life. Um, she's been an educator before I was even born. And before I even get to who she is as a person, she's just always been very just all in for her students, for her staff. I've never seen her in a position where you ever had to question her leadership or you ever had to question her intentions because she's just that type of leader and that type of principal where if she's there for you, you will know off the bat. And she usually is there for every single person who enters her building. And as a person, being my aunt, she's definitely one of the most loving, smart, caring, generous people I know, and just someone who's totally reliable in any situation. So just from my perspective, she's just an all-around amazing person. I definitely agree with what Kalia said. I know this was at my freshman year at DMLK, which was ninth grade, was actually my first time meeting Miss uh, Grayson. And I was at first, I didn't really know how she was, but she has shown that she actually cares about me. She cares about all of us and she cares about every single one of her students because you see her constantly putting herself out there and her heart out there just to make sure that each student has a good education at this school and make sure each student could succeed. And it's like really amazing. Miss Grayson is an inspiration to me. She's just one of the most inspirational people that I've ever met in my life. And I aspire to be her when I grow up. And that's part of the reason why I want to be a teacher is her, because I know she was an educator for a while. And I just want to be as responsible and as elegant as she is in everything that she does. Um, Miss Grayson is like, if I have like a second mom, it would be Miss Grayson because she really, she is my family and she's been there just supporting me and helping me and helping me stay on the right track. I know that she genuinely does really care about me and she shows it in everything that she does. And she cares about all of us and literally every single student at DMLK. And she's an amazing leader and she's kind and she's generous. She cares about everyone that's in her community. And she leads, she's leading all of her students to educational liberation. And I feel like that's a really big blessing for any student that walks into the doors at MLK. Now I have to say all of that's that's very good. And I was thinking back about my high school days. Uh, Kalia, uh, you very proudly and loudly announced that she is your aunt. Uh, I had that kind of a situation in my high school. My father was the band director. And so I was always worried about what people would think of me because my father was the band director. So I kind of, I never called him by his name. I never called him Mr. Williams because I wasn't going to do that. <clears throat> but I also sure enough didn't call him daddy. So I, I kind of sympathize, but you, you are very bold with your appreciation. I, I think I should have been as well. So, so that's uh, that's uh, Miss Grayson. I have here something somebody at uh, the Relay Graduate School of Education said about her. As a black school leader herself, she was deeply troubled by how little black history was taught to her students. She wanted her students to feel the same inspiration and the same hurt to spark within them a hunger to take charge of their learning and to change the world. So she went to the National Museum of African-American History in Washington, D.C. in April of 2019. And then October of 2019, she came back with 
17 students. So that's the trip we want to talk about. Uh, what did you see at the museum that most inspired you? I feel like the whole museum experience in itself was really just the most significant part. Just the whole idea of the museum is essentially that you start out in dark times. You go down this cramped up elevator and I think it's meant to uh, symbolize or assimilate a slave ship. And as you're climbing up, you know, the top level is the civil rights movement. So you're able to see how as a people we progress and have been fighting and have been overcoming struggles, obstacles and really anything that's been put in our way. And I feel like it really pulls out the resilience within our culture and within our people. And I feel like that's really liberating. And I think that's the feeling that we were all able to speak on and wanted to bring back to DMLK when we returned from the trip. Kalia, would you say that was a life-changing event for you? Absolutely. Like, I agree with what Janelle said. I also feel like like, I noticed one really significant thing was that the lighting changed at the bottom. Like, how Janelle said, it was, it was meant to um, kind of symbolize a slave ship at the bottom level where you first come in. It's very dark, low lighting. Um, you have to get closer to the exhibits to, like, see what's actually going on. And then as you get higher up, the lighting gets brighter and it's more colorful. And then at the top, it has to do with, like, music and art. It's all this beautiful um, lighting. I feel like that really just signifies, I think, for me, where at the bottom, it can really just show all of that negative emotion, especially as a Black person, like many of us on the trip, never even experiencing your history in that depth as the museum. As you go up, you're learning so many things, and it can definitely affect your emotions as you go through it. But as you go up, that light can kind of just reflect how you're feeling, where at the bottom you may feel low and like, no, wow, I didn't know it was this bad. And it can feel a bit depressing. But as you go up, you get just so much prouder and so much happier seeing all of this amazing representation, all of this amazing progression of your culture. So I feel like my experience going through the entire museum, that lighting really signified my mindset where I, at first I was really depressed and then just completely elevated how I was thinking of everything. Donnie, what did you learn about yourself that you didn't know before? I think, well, when I went to the museum, I know before I went, I had a lot of self-confidence issues and like not really believing myself and not really liking the color of my skin. But the more I went through the museum, I was just able to like, I saw like so many different role models and how we actually really came up because it's not what we were taught here at our school. It was completely different. And just seeing how we have moved up and how the light kept shining on us, like Kalia said, it gets lighter every level. It was just like really cool. And it just helped me like gather a lot of confidence about myself and just made me love myself more. Was it heavy to process all of that? It was it was really hard to process it. It was really heavy to process it. I think it took me a few months to process everything that I had seen in that museum and process how I felt about it and what I wanted to do about it. Um, at the time, I just remember feeling very motivated after I got done. I wanted to change it because I wanted other kids to be able to have the liberation that we had when we went to the museum and to be able to have the experience that we had. Learning your history is a powerful thing. It's a sad thing, it's a happy thing. It's exciting, it's depressing, it's all of that. But you need to know it in order to know yourself, which is why it's so amazing. Wow, I guess that was a life-changing event. Did it make you mad too? Angry. What's another word for angry? Mad. <laughs> yeah, it did. I I remember uh, when I was your age, I had a similar experience. Of course, growing up in Richmond, Virginia, during the time of segregation, there was no such museum. Nobody had even thought about doing something on that scale. There were there were obviously we had great historians and great teachers. But but something close and personal was the uh, the death of uh, Emmett Till. Uh, I, I saw that 
body, that mangled body in the casket. And it was on the front page of a magazine we had called Jet Magazine. And Mamie Till, his mother, the, the funeral director said, no, 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 we can't, we can't show this. We're going to have a closed casket funeral. She said, no. I want everybody to see what they did to my son. I get chills thinking about it now. And so I believe it was 40,000 people filed by that casket and watched what the Ku Klux Klan and the, the white racists in Mississippi had done to him. And it really sparked a movement within me, as it seems to have done within you. I, I became proud, I became mad, and I wanted to do something about it. So what did you all do? Obviously, the, the museum, somebody even said it, the, the, the museum, I think it was you, Donna, you said you became proud to be black. Uh, what was it like when you felt that pride? I know a lot of it was actually, like you said, being mad and being able to actually want to speak about it because a lot of students our age don't really have confidence to speak up for themselves or especially speak with high position people. And I didn't really have the confidence either. But when I went through that museum, something like sparked in me that made me like, no, this needs to change. We're tired of it. We need to learn our history now. Other students need to see what we saw. And I guess that's what really just sparked this change and made me want to speak up for other students and myself. So what did you decide to do? This is a question to anybody. Well, at first, we, um, the very next day, actually, after our trip, we spoke at a spotlight meeting to our teachers, um, different people in the history department, and I feel like a few um, representatives for the board, I think. And we were just presenting to them our trip and all of the things that we were feeling, the last meeting that we had debriefing our trip and how like our ask for basically wanting more black history in the curriculum. And after that, we started our BSA and we went into the summer, you know. BSA, your, your Black Student Association. Yeah, yeah, our Black Student Alliance. And then COVID hit and we um, were virtual and we decided to, well, after George Floyd had passed away, we decided to start our podcast, um, No Justice, No Peace, The Take. After we started our podcast, we also started working on our resolution to get more Black history into schools. And in October of 2020, that was passed unanimously. So, Passed by the Board of Education of Denver, Colorado? Yes. Wow. Just like that. How exciting. You had all the students fired up? Um, I would say, especially because, to be honest, speaking from personal experience, I was really just removed from a lot of my previous activities during the pandemic because especially when things are virtual and you're not really connected with your friends or your teachers or all your previous commitments, it's hard to keep track of anything. So the work we were doing was very limited to us and some of the students in the BSA who were in the beginning involved with the podcast. But um, we definitely had a lot of support from our community, community leaders, um, other student activists in our community. But we weren't really focused on generating like popularity or publicity. We we're more focused on just getting our, our message out there and getting it done. So how has the teaching of African-American history changed since your victory? Um, it's been amazing. I remember before we went on the trip, we had one African-American history class available at our school. And I feel like it definitely scraped the surface of Black history that a lot of students are used to learning. But afterwards, it's like, especially after we came back from the trip and we talked to our teachers, um, actually, after we went, Grayson sent one of our assistant principals, Miss Rachel Sutherland, and almost all of our English and history teachers back to the museum. And while they were there, I believe they were there for like two days, they were rewriting their own curriculums to include more Black history. And they, when we presented to the district, um, a lot of teachers at our district and at our school and district representation, they presented what they were going to be changing about their curriculum. 
So I feel like right off the bat, a lot of classes definitely started to include more Black history in their teachings. And it was a big change before we even wrote the resolution, before it was district-wide. That's incredible. I'm sitting here thinking about what it took just to get uh, high schools and colleges to uh, teach Black history back in the 1960s and the early 70s. Uh, people had to go to jail. There were confrontations uh, just because people wanted people like you and me want to find out more about ourselves. Because as the civil rights movement progressed, one of the things people realize is that the way you keep people enslaved and on their knees is to deny them the truth about who they are. And so you went to the museum and got mad. Uh, I went on the picket line and got mad, so to speak, because every day I was finding out something new. We were peeling back those layers, peeling peeling back those layers, finding out, for example, that uh, the, the first human beings came from Africa. Nobody told us that. Finding out that the great civilizations were from Africa. And so it's it's a it's really uh wonderful that the museum has put all of that information in one place. And even more spectacular that you had teachers to go there and see for themselves, you were able to talk to them and to say to them, this is something I want, and they agreed with you. Uh, we applaud you. I'm sure there's people out there all over. I'm going to give you a hand right here while I'm sitting here talking to you. Now, nowadays, though, there's something that is going on that I want to get your opinion on. I want to. Uh, this is this this is where we we get away from the trip, so to speak. Uh, we we were fighting Jim Crow. We were fighting for justice. We we were in the streets. Uh, people were going to jail. Uh, I went to jail for the right to vote. Thousands of people were locked up, put in jail, beat up. Some people were killed along the way. Uh, but today we hear uh, some kind of acceptance of that as history and, and, and as a valid history. But today we hear softer language about race and racism called inclusion. We hear uh, words like uh, we need to have diversity, and we hear people congratulating, institutions are com congratulating themselves for being uh, the most diverse. We mean, what, what does that language uh, mean to you when you hear that kind of talk today? Um, I do. I feel like diversity is a great thing. It's great for the world to be diverse, but I don't feel like people use the term diverse and inclusive the way that it's supposed to be. I feel like it's used as more of a token, as a, a pat on the back for, you know, like a label of, yeah, we're pro this or we are fighting the same fight, but really they're not because you can see in these systems and institutions, our people are still continually oppressed and, you know, belittled and tried to be made out as something that we're not. We're continually stereotyped. And for them to say that they are on our side because they are a diverse institution or they are inclusive. Their diversity and inclusion is not helping us progress. I feel like one really important thing is like back when they were starting to desegregate schools, like for example, Ruby Bridges, how a lot of times, I mean, parents would pull their white students out of classes because she was in there. And it's kind of reflective where, yes, there are Black students in the classroom, but they're still being ridiculed and they're still not being taught enough history for them to actually be educated. And they're still not receiving equal education period to their white peers. So yes, you can say your school is diverse or yes, you can say your space is diverse because you have Black or people of color there, but are you giving them the same resources you're giving to your white students to the point where it's actually diverse? Because one thing to have, say like, oh, we have 60% black and 30% Hispanic and 10% white or whatever different statistics. But at the end of the day, if no, if they're not all receiving the same resources and they're all they're not all receiving the same opportunities, then you're not really diverse or fighting the same fight. You're just, like Janelle said, trying to receive this token for doing the bare minimum. 
just really like what Janelle said about it's kind of like the words of pat on the back just because it's not only the words diverse or just inclusion it's also about equity and equality because a lot of people like bring that up and like hey we're doing this it's we're including all the different types of people but it's mainly just so other people could look at it and be like oh they're doing something good and kind of give them like a token of success but in all of that's like people are just using it for like I don't want to say clout but that's in a certain way. Counting the numbers, not writing society's wrongs. Very perceptive. Very perceptive. Uh, now, here's another topic I want to talk to you about. Uh, did you guys watch the Grammys? All right. Some of you did. did. All right. You did? All right. Good. That was your assignment. That was what I wanted you to do. Because I want to hear from you about your preferences. Uh, so let me let me see if I can formulate a question uh did you think that the awards given out the recognition that's given out by the grammys is truly representative of black music the grammys has never been representative of black people and they've never been they've never been fair in giving out their awards like taylor swift just won her third grammy for album of the year for an album that none of us ever heard of in our lives. But Janae Aiko was there for an album that got so many sales and so many people loved that album and she didn't get that Grammy. I just want to add on because I feel like- This is Janelle, go ahead. Yeah, I feel like music culture is what a lot of people speak to. Like everybody can relate to music in some way, shape or form. So for that to not be representative of all the people that listen to music and all the people that enjoy music and all the people whose music helps people get through whatever, or to feel motivated or to just whatever people use music for, for that to only, for only one group to really be awarded and celebrated it's like another pattern that we see over and over again and it really is an injustice because it's disrespectful to all of those other artists that are putting in so much to into their music and into their art and into really speaking to their audiences so adding on to Alana's point I really do feel that it's it's unfair that like she was saying Certain people are getting their third Grammy when we don't even hear their music. When Nicki Minaj has never got a Grammy, ever. ever. But what about what about some of the uh, older forms of music? Now, I grew up on blues and rhythm and blues. Uh, I, I see you feel something and jazz. Mm -hmm. uh, I see you feel something about that, Kalia. Tell me. Yep. And I'm going to say this because I was having in the back of my head when um, Alana and Jenna were talking. I completely agree. But also, Black people, we have contributed to virtually every music genre there is. Rock, that was invented by a Black woman. Like, hip-hop, popularized, invented, and part of mainstream music and society in general because of Black people. And it's just really upsetting when Black people are not given their roses for basically what we contribute to the culture. Because I honestly feel like American culture would not be where it is today without Black people or without Black contributions. And it's just upsetting, like, for example, Beyonce, she's arguably one of the most successful popular artists of all time. And she's won many Grammys, which she obviously deserved. But she's kind of so stuffed so many times when the Grammys uses her for publicity, like, oh, Beyonce's award, I mean, nominated for so and so award, and she wins like two or three of them. Like, she, like, that's just one example where Black people, they're so just, just so disregarded for the contributions they make to music and to society in general. Uh, are you all familiar with a uh, po poet? playwright, political activist by the name of Amiri Baraka. Also, his name was Leroy Jones. Okay, you want to get to know him. You want to get to know him. Uh, when Maybe you want to write a paper about him. Uh, his son now is the mayor of Newark, New Jersey. His name is Raz Baraka. Uh, but that's not why I'm calling out his name right now because uh, he wrote some really important books 
about uh, black music. Uh, one of them, in one of them, he says that uh, the blues is the history of black people. The blues is the history of black people. Now, now, that's a whole conversation in and of itself. Maybe I'll invite you back and we can have that, but I want you to do a little research on that one. But if taking what he says is true, if that's true, what does hip hop say about black folks? If there's an evolution, and he said there will be an evolution, and if the music has evolved into hip hop, what does that say about us? Honestly, I would say that music is like a universal language and you're able to speak to experiences and the things that are going on in your life and express how you feel about the things that are going on through music. So with, I'm not too familiar with the origin of the blues, if I'm being honest, but I think that with it evolving into our hip hop culture, that is still what, you know, our people are saying, like that is still the experiences that we are going through. And I feel like it has been able to carry a lot of people through different things and also help start movements. Like for example, protest music and the different things that you're able to do through Music. I know people have a lot of controversy on people like Nicki Minaj or Megan Thee Stallion, but they stand for things that people are really trying to advocate for, but just don't have the voices for. So I still, I still feel like through music, there's a lot of things that are going on, a lot of advocacy, activism. There's messages and conversations being held. Um, as a unit, and we don't even really look at it that way, but um, I, yeah, that's what I think. I was gonna say, um, I agree with you, and I just wanna add on to like one really important thing. Like, I wanna talk about two topics. I'll try not to ramble, but especially when we're talking about people like Nicki Minaj and Megan Thee Stallion, people see them, and of course, people are gonna have their opinions about how women should do, like, talk like this, or walk like this, or dress like this, or act like this. But people really don't understand when people like when Megan Thee Stallion is on the TV dancing and doing what she wants or when Nicki Minaj is dressing and rapping and doing what she wants. It's liberating. And I feel like for so long, black women have had our liberation and our ownership of ourselves and our sexuality just completely under guard because they expect us to have this some sort of image. I feel like women like Megan Thee Stallion and Nicki Minaj and rappers who own their sexuality are defying the idea that black women can't own certain identities within themselves. And then just another thing I wanna talk about with hip hop. I feel like one really big issue, cause like when you go back to the nineties and the eighties, like Tupac and Biggie, they were living what they were rapping about. And I feel like a lot, like, especially people from older generations, a problem they might have with it is that there are rappers popping up all over the place talking about experiences that they might not have but a big issue with that is that when white people get a hand of our culture, including hip hop, they capitalize it. And it's kind of become a system where a new rapper comes in and they have to make new music to appeal to everybody. And a lot of the times white people try to resonate with that music. So I feel like one really big thing with hip hop is like, even though everybody who's coming up might not be living the life they're rapping about, it's because it has been capitalized to the point where there's a constant demand for that type of rap, whether it's that or not. I feel like that's really important thing to just acknowledge where people, there are still people out there who relate to the type of hip hop music that's being generated. But then again, at the end of the day, it's the white people who are appropriating it, who are pushing it and who are capitalizing it, who are making that demand so high. And I think that's where it kind of gets confusing, where everything kind of gets mixed up because black people, they mainly, when they sing, they tell a story in almost every single song, they tell a story. And not only white people, it's like, all different types of races start categorizing like black people, like all they're good for is music. That's all they could do. What they grow up, they probably want to be a singer or a rapper or um, some type of sports player, something like that. And that's all people really categorize us as just because of the stuff we make and produce. And I feel like that's where it gets complicated. Now, the next thing I want to talk about, I read an article 
in the New York Times. This was uh, about a week or so ago. And it says, uh, this is the, the headline, College Essays in a Year of Grief and Turmoil. This year, the college essay has served as a canvas for high school seniors to reflect on a turbulent and for many a sorrowful year. It has been a psychiatrist's couch, a roadmap to a more hopeful future, a chance to pour out intimate feelings about loneliness and injustice. So I know uh, some of you have uh, written essays like that because uh, you have to write them to get into college. I, would, I just want to read a couple of these, uh, these these essays to you and get your opinion about it. This was written by a young woman named uh, Ivy Wanjiku. She and her mother came to America with nothing but each other and $100, writes Ivy, who was born in Kenya and attends North Cobb High School in Kennesaw, Georgia. I am a, this is uh, Ivy talking, I am a triple threat, foreign, black, female, from the dirt roads and dust that covered the attire of my ancestors who worshiped the soil, I have sprouted new beginnings for generations. But the question arises, will that generation live to see its day? Melanin mistaken as a felon, my existence is now a hashtag that trends as often as my rights, a facade at best, a lie in truth. I now know more names of dead blacks than I do the amendments of the Constitution. I definitely can relate and resonate with things that were said in that essay. And um, I agree, especially with that last statement when she said that she knows more dead Blacks than amendments. I feel like that's something that's really sad, but it, at the same time, it's a reality. And injustice is a reality for a lot of us. And having to see that every single day, especially with this quarantine and being in the house and having to deal with this, if you don't have something that is able to liberate you, something that's able to empower you, something that's able to inspire you to want to make a change, that's always going to be our reality. And I feel like a lot of students do not are not inspired or liberated to want to make these changes. So we see these patterns going on year after year after year. And it's so interesting because yesterday we were watching a documentary and this one guy, he was speaking to the community and he was saying how 30 years ago he was watching Rodney King die because of police brutality. And 30 years later, in the same month, there's George Floyd that is also being murdered by the police and lost his life to police brutality and an injustice. And it's like if students, he, he said that 30 years ago, he was watching that as a powerless student. But if there were students that were liberated and understood their history, maybe those 30 years later, we would have been able to progress and be able to make a change because those inspired students and activists were seeking change. Now, there, there was something else interesting about this, and, and I didn't... Uh... I didn't uh, think about it until you just answered the question. But uh, Ivy is from Kenya. Uh, she was born in Kenya. You were you were born in the United States to uh, Janelle. I'm talking to. I think you. I think you told me that your father is from one African country and your mother another. Yeah, my father is from Cameroon and my mother is from Congo. And were you born here or one of the other countries? I was born here. Mm -hmm. So, what does Africa mean to you? That just just a just a little bit more about me, because uh, that was one of the things they kept from us. That in, in 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 elementary school and high school when I was coming along, one of the worst things you could say to somebody was, "You from Africa," even if they weren't from Africa, even if we weren't 
from Africa. That was like an insult. And I see you resonating to that. So so talk to me about your discovery of yourself as an African as well as a, a Black American. That is so huge because that is definitely something that I feel like so many kids struggle with today. And I feel like it's something that we struggle with within the Black community. And throughout this journey, I have been really learning myself and really being able to appreciate myself and my culture and where I come from because we know that people derive in Africa. And from all of the stuff that we've been learning, I feel like us as people, we all have something that like human nature and we all have something about us. We all have a purpose. And I feel like as time has gone on and as we have been segregated and as we have these malicious intents and desires, those people have gotten lost and have lost themselves and their purpose. But Thankfully, throughout this and throughout being able to learn my history, I've I've recognized myself. I've recognized my strengths. And I just feel like there are so many other students that are being wronged because they don't understand themselves. They don't understand the beauty and where they come from and where we all come from. And they make it out to be an insult because our country unfortunately is underdeveloped because we were taken advantage of, but I don't feel like that's okay because we have so much to ourselves. We have strength, we have resilience. And to think that there's really a black kid or an African kid sitting there and really hating themselves, hating where they come from, having to feel like they need to lie to their peers about where they come from because they're ashamed and because their peers and the people that look like them are also talking down on them, making them feel bad about themselves. I feel like it's such a big injustice that happens every day within the school systems and everywhere. And I feel like it's something that definitely needs to change. So that's my opinion and take on that. I remember recently, um, the four of us, me, Donnie, Elijah, Janelle, we took um, DNA tests from Ancestry, I mean, 23andMe. And for me, it was just really affirming to know where I come from. The majority of my DNA, I'm actually Nigerian. And that's just really reaffirming to know, because I feel like one thing that really just can affect Black people in America, especially who are born here and disconnected from their culture in Africa, is that we're taught, like Janosa so often to hate where we come from and to hate parts of us that don't assimilate to whiteness. And even though I've grown up with the privilege of nobody questioning who I am as a person, I feel like it's just so affirming to get rid of that internalized hatred for yourself and where you may come from. Because like just knowing that I came from excellence and just knowing that I I can relate somewhere to this continent I know I've always been from. I've always known that I'm Black, obviously, but it's just so good to know that like, I am Nigerian. I come from Nigerian descent. And it's just so amazing to know that because, like, once again, white supremacy teaches you to not be proud of that and to only want to take pride in the parts of you that are mixed or the parts of you that are white. I feel like that's just something that so, like, at one point or another, so many Black people should be able to know their culture because slavery has derooted ourselves from our culture and from our history to the point where not only did they destroy our history and actual evidence of where we came from, they destroyed records of our ancestors to the point where I don't know the majority of my ancestors. I feel like just being able to get a little piece of where I'm from, whether that's a broad geographical location, it's just so reaffirming to my identity as a Black person to know that there's a part of me that doesn't have to assimilate to white America and white culture. If you had an opportunity to meet with and talk to Lonnie Bunch, who was the person who was the original director, executive director of the National African American Museum. Lonnie Bunch is now the secretary of the whole Smithsonian Institute. I started to say empire because it is very large. There's several museums, there's libraries, there's even the zoo. If you had a chance to meet the founder of the National African-American History and Culture Museum, 
what would you say to him? So um, basically what I would really want to ask him is his story and like why he was inspired or what gave him the courage to actually create the museum and just museums all over to help people really understand black history. Because like you said earlier, it's very hard to talk about people were getting arrested for it. People were getting criticized for even trying to mention the topic black history. So I just really want to know like what encouraged him to do that and what, like what's his story, what inspired him to make this change and like just help everybody and want to actually stand up for something that a lot of people should be standing up for. Um. I think I would just thank him because he's the reason that I've gotten where I am right now. If it wasn't for him making these museums, I would probably still be heading down a bad path that I was heading down before I went. Um, So I think that I would just thank him for helping me get my education and for helping me realize that I have a purpose in this world and that my purpose is great and I'm great too. I would just love to thank him because it really has changed my life and changed the way that I view a lot of things and the way that I'm advocating for my generation and my people. And just through social media, like I see a lot of negativity and I'm really truly inspired to change that. And In my opinion, I feel that our generation is very lost. And for me personally, I would just like to speak on a little bit of history and the spirituality aspect of it that I was brought to after visiting the museum and throughout the whole whole journey from the changes that we've been able to make based off of that trip to the museum. I feel like I've been able to get a better understanding on things. It's like just my Black history has made me look at things differently, has made me feel secure, and has made me be able to find what I feel is my purpose. And I feel like there's so many other students, especially in our generation, that this can impact. And I, that that's why it's so critical and so important. So I would just like to thank him because being able to go through that museum and being able to have that experience literally has changed my life and changed the lives of others with the impact that just we've been able to make and all the other students that will be impacted after that. That museum for me, even though I wouldn't say I was ignorant about Black history, I was definitely unknowledgeable. And just not only being able to experience, it was like finding a very, it was like finding a lost puzzle piece in a big puzzle you've been trying to solve your entire life. Like, I also use this in this other example I talked about. It's like being able to wipe the fog off of a mirror you've never actually been able to see yourself in. Where just being able to see all of this, like actual facts, not misconstrued facts, not stuff that's watered down because a history book doesn't want to be too graphic about slavery or black history. Being able to see all this in front of my own eyes really just not only took took out my rose colored glasses, it let me see this is real. This is where I come from. And it's not necessarily anything to be ashamed of or anything to take um, disappointment, but to grow and actually be able to sit in that anger and in that frustration that your people went through this. Cause at the end of the day, if you can't resonate any emotion, any emotions with it, you can't really do anything with that experience. And I'm just so glad that the museum was there for me and all of us to let us sit in that anger for long enough to actually make a change. Cause a lot of people find themselves being uncomfortable in that uncomfort, like being angry and seeing all of this horrible stuff that happened to our people, but then they don't do anything with it. And I'm just so glad that that museum experience was so deep that it really allowed us to sit in that anger and actually do something about what we're being taught. So I just like to thank him for making all of us, I can't imagine, down to other people throughout D.C. and throughout the world uncomfortable. Well, for about the fourth time during this conversation with you four young ladies, I find myself close to tears, tears of joy and just wonderment at the wisdom that you have. We are the older generation, you are the younger generation, but you sure know how to educate and express yourself. 
I'm uh, very happy that you all decided to come and be a part of this. Uh, I hope to to see you and um, maybe even see you in person one day. Who knows? Once once COVID has died down, uh, we can all kind of get on a plane again and and come do something. So uh, thank you very much. Before we end, I just want to tell you that uh, this is Everything's Political, and I want to introduce to some, some of you have heard uh, me talk about these folks before, but I want to just uh, talk about the team a little bit that makes this possible. Uh, there's Frankie Walls, who does the publicity, Alexis McCoy, who does the administrative work for us, Kelly Prempe, who is the editor, Kalina Berryman, who's kind of like everything behind the scenes. She pulls it all together for me. The theme song is by Anthony Ant Jackson and technical support, my own son, Che Williams. Frankie and Alexis and Kelly and Kalina, I know from the Abbott Leadership Institute, which I used to run before I retired. And Kalina is taking over now. Uh, these young people uh, were part of a group called the Youth Media Symposium. And they have learned a whole lot about the media and have now been pulled in the direction of uh, actually doing this podcast behind the scenes. Also, thanks to Kurt Fields and the Terrell Foundation for the funding, Center for Education and Juvenile Justice, Inc., which is my sponsor. And until we meet the next time, goodbye. Just remember that a black man's work is never done, so I'm going to be out here. Thank you, ladies, once again. You made my day. I just okay. want to say thank you for the podcast. It was great. Thank you. And I was happy to be on it. This was really fun. We really loved doing other podcasts and just talking to people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This has been awesome. I, I can't even say enough. Just thank you so much for having us here. We really appreciate it. All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.